Lord, uh, that your every page, every paragraph would come alive. Lord, speak to our hearts, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everybody tonight? Fabulous. Oh, that sounded good. (laughs) It's not quite as fabulous as he lets on, huh? (laughs) If you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we uh, just continue uh, uh, studying the life of David and a man after God's own heart. I'm... uh, Always encouraged as I go through scriptures and studying David because the scripture doesn't lay out for us that David was perfect, that David never struggled, that David never made mistakes. It tells us he was a man after God's own heart. And it was apart from his ability to be perfect or, or sinless or always do the right thing. But what there was that David did that everyone is capable of is really keeping God center in his life the always coming back that was his grounding the lord was his grounding and tonight as we look at chapter seven we see a desire in david a desire in david to do something that god hadn't asked anybody to do but the kind of cool thing is that that somebody cared to do it at all for the most part you know we get busy in our lives don't we Uh, things are happening things are going on we got stuff going on with family, grandkids, uh, uh, our own kids, whatever. A number of things that can take our focus and our days are all planned out and there's all these things going on. But there came a time, at least in chapter 7 of Second Samuel for David, when David looked around and said, you know, I got pretty good life. Living in a, a pretty nice palace, I'm king. And I look and I see that God still dwells in a tent. That the Lord is the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle isn't permanent. It's, it's movable. And so he desired to do something for the Lord. Now, while that's cool, there was a reason God was in a tabernacle. All throughout Scripture, we see for the nation of Israel as they would encamp and as they would move through the, through the promised land. The, the way that they would be led was by the, the cloud, right? Remember the cloud and the pillar of fire going through the wilderness. And when the cloud moved, the children moved. When they saw the pillar of fire moving, they packed up and left. All their encampment surrounded one thing, and that was the tabernacle. The tabernacle went center. And then all the other encampments were around the tabernacle. So that God was central in their life. If I wanted to go from a tribe in the south to a tribe that was in the north, I passed by the tabernacle. East to west, same way. Some say even if you were to stand up on top of a cliff or you were to fly over in a plane and look at the encampment, the way it's described in the scripture, it would look like a cross. 
with the camps below the tabernacle, beside the tabernacle, and above the tabernacle. Everything was central to the tabernacle. When we read the Gospel of John, I think we're given a hint as to why. In the Gospel of John, the Scripture tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that word dwelt is the word tabernacled. In the tabernacle, you have a picture of Christ. You have a, you have a picture of Lord God Almighty in a goat hair tent. In, in a place held up by a variety of, of stakes surrounded by a linen fence. And we kind of went through the whole tabernacle and all the pictures. I don't want to get too into that. But the idea is that of God leaving heaven and dwelling with men in a tent. What is it that Paul said? Remember when Paul said, one day I'm going to die in this earthly, you remember this earthly tent is going to be folded up and I'm going to go my way? Well, it's the exact same thing that we see in Scripture, the picture of God being in the tabernacle with His people, that He was there. It's a picture of God putting on flesh, of God walking among His people, of Him being central in their life. All the way through the Scripture, guys, there's one message, God's redemption of man. And it's not like all of a sudden his concept changed and he began to think, well, I better send my son because things are pretty screwed up now. Man, he was doing that from the, the Proto-Evangelicum is Genesis 3.15. Proto-Evangelicum is Latin for the first mention of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, that's way back at creation. The scripture tells us before the foundations of the world... Christ was crucified for us. So this purpose, God's purpose, went all the way back then. And so it could be seen. And the other thing that we can see when we look and we see the tabernacle moving with the people is that when the people came into the land and life got a little better, they weren't having the, to, to move their house and travel around the desert. So they took the, that, that tabernacle, the place of God, and they moved it to a place called Shiloh. And there it sat, and they ignored it. And they ignored worship, and they ignored meeting, and they went about their life. And for me, it's such, a, it's such an incredible reminder to the things that happen in our life. You know, when we're going through times in the wilderness... When life is a little more chaotic, it seems much easier for us to keep God central in that time. And He's here in the midst, and He's, and he's with me in the furnace of affliction, right? With, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There He is in the fire with me. But then, when the, when the fires of affliction, they cool, and life gets good, it's really easy to relegate God to, well, He's over there in Shiloh. In fact, we saw last time the children of Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant and it hadn't even been in the tabernacle for the last hundred years. It was staying at some guy's house because nobody would go get it. 
But now we see David has brought it to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in the scriptures is a unique place because, folks, Jerusalem is outside of the inheritance of every tribe. Jerusalem didn't belong to somebody. It's kind of like D.C. is in the United States. It doesn't belong to a state, so some state can't say it's ours. You know, it's, it's, it's a separate entity. The same way, the same way with <clears throat> Jerusalem. There it is. It's, it's there in the midst. It's her eternal capital. And David brings the Ark of the Covenant and he begins to look around and he, and he sees, you know, life's been pretty good to him. Got himself a big old palace. Too many wives. Too many horses. Too much gold. We'll see that in the next verses too. You know what Solomon did ending his life, David began. Solomon just <laughs> brought it to perfection. But David started him down that trip. Started him down that path. When chapter 7 verse 1 it says... When it came to pass that the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. Now here's what that means. The Lord had given him rest. Some people trip on the concept, but the idea is really simple. The Philistines aren't... The very next chapter, we're going to see David going to war. And we're going to see David continuing to, to, to do the battles. In fact, he's going to establish the nation of Israel to the greatest degree of any king uh, before or after. He's going to set the borders. He's going, to, he's going to accomplish the 10% of the promise of what God gave the nation of Israel. Not 100%, but he's going to establish the greatest borders that, that they ever had. And so he's going to go out and be a part of that. But when the Bible says that God had given them rest, the enemies of God have decided that David has whooped us already a couple of times, so we're happy just to stay here. David is going to go to them in the next chapter. David is going to, to go and expand the borders, if you will, of what God has given him. But for now, <clears throat> he's established his capital. He's a king. No enemies are banging on the gates. Nobody's trying to get in. He's got a moment to, to kind of consider what's going on around him. It says in verse 2, So that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I now dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And this, to me, is so much like us. But that's the picture God wanted us to have. That the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God meets man, dwells in a tent. It's not going to come to a fancy palace. He's not going to come with the trumpets blazing in a parade. He's going to be no, no form or comeliness. Isn't that what Isaiah tells us? There's nothing about him that we're going to desire him. If you were to see the tabernacle, we talked about this when we studied the tabernacle. From outside, it's just a goat hair tent. You didn't even begin to understand the beauty and the majesty of the tabernacle until you walked through the door. And then you saw the golden menorah and the and the table of the showbread and the golden altar and if you could walk through the holy place into the holy of holies there you would see the ark of the covenant you would recognize the beauty the tapestry the 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 work of art from the inside of that goat hair tent and it's still true today 
A lot of people look at Jesus from the outside, and so what's the big deal? Who's he? What's he got to offer me? But when we enter into a relationship, when we pass through the door, we see the beauty. That's how God always intended it. Sometimes people look at this and they say, yeah, 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 you know, David had this big house. God should have had a big house too. And we're going to see. God's going to say, hey, I never commanded anybody to make me a house. I have provided you a type, a picture of me sending my son. This is how he's going to come. We see at the time of Christ that the, <clears throat> that the temple was a struggle, right, for the people. Because all their pride was in the temple. In the building. Not in the person. Jesus stood there before the temple on the steps. I've been on the southern steps. And the place where Jesus taught. The same stone that he walked on. And I sat there. And when Jesus stood there and taught the people. They cared more about the fancy building behind him. Than the message he had to give. Because we get so focused on that stuff. But God said... I'm going to dwell in a tent. All of that picturing what, what the Gospel of John delivers to us when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt in tent. He took off the royal robes, and He put on the clothes of a common man, and the sinners and the tax collectors heard him gladly. The common man would line up to hear the things Jesus had to say. Why? Because he was one of them. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of the tabernacle. And that's the thing that for David, I, 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 <clears throat> I love the heart that says, I want to do something special for God. But, but just like David's heart is here, sometimes we can have the same desire. I want to do something special for God. And we think that special thing that we're going to do for God is something, it's got to be something big, right? It's got to be something majestic. It's got to be something, you know, humongous. And we forget. But the, but the Lord's example to us of doing things for people was, was much smaller. If you'd offer a, a cup of cold water in my name. Or if you would offer a plate of hot food. Or if you would bring a prayer of encouragement. And God moves in, the, in our regular everyday life. David wants to do something great. I love that. I, I, that's, I want that to be my heart. I want to do something great for the Lord. But I, want, I don't want to ignore the things, the signs, the symbols, the examples that I have right around me. The opportunities that we can have to, to serve Him. Well, listen, I love Nathan. Nathan says to David, Go and do all that is in your heart. Just before we talk about Nathan, if, if, a, if someone said that to you today, could you do that? I mean, Nathan could look at David and say, David, go do what, everything that's in your heart. Go. Because they, he knew David's heart. 
was just focused on the Lord. He loved God. Can, can we, are we in that place? Man, I love God. Can, can we sit here? Can someone tell us? Could the Lord say, go do all that's in your heart? Go do all that's in your heart. It's an interesting dichotomy because the scripture also tells us that the heart is deceitful and wicked. But here he says, Nathan says to him, Do what's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. God had been with David. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I love that God begins us with that question. It's almost as though, I mean, oh, think about it. Who has ever offered that? Whoever had said, man, I want to build God a house. Well, God told Abraham, I'll build you a house. I'll make you a mighty nation. The different promises that God makes throughout the Old Testament, you see the Lord meeting people in that place. And I'm not saying, I, I don't know that those thoughts were never in those men's. But David verbalized it. I want to build God a house. I want to do something great for the Lord. And it's like the Lord saying, wow, you you want to build me a house? Oh, of course, God knows his heart. God knows what's going on. But I just love how he he says it. He said that, that, I don't know, that that place of intimacy with with God where the Lord's like stoked that David wants to, to build a house for him. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. But I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. But he did that on purpose. To show us. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord says, I, I haven't asked. I haven't asked. The picture is, is, is viable here. I want you to see that I want to be in your midst. I want to go where you go. If you pick up and move, I want to be there. It's still the same way in our life today. There is no such thing as a division between sacred and secular. So if you have that in your mind... Wash it out. If you are a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you wherever you go. If you choose to go dwell on the doorstep of Satan himself, Jesus is with you. We don't get to leave him back home. Lord, you just stay here. And I'm going to go out and be a wild man tonight. But when I come back, I'll pick you back up again. That doesn't work that way. Wherever we go, whatever we do. He wants to be with us. He wants to be there. So he says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. I love that God does that. Who is David right now? He's the king. He's the king of the entire nation. Finally, he's the king. But to God, it's my servant David. My servant David. We ever lose sight of that? Do you know that today people are all wrapped up with titles? Everybody wants a title. What's my title? Am I a deacon? Am I an elder? Am I a, what am I? Give me a title. I want a title. Give me a title. <clears throat> That's the exact same thing that the disciples were constantly fighting over. 
Well, the scripture says, who is the greatest? Well, who gets the title? Who's going to be the one? You know, I'm the number one. You're number two. You're number three, down to 12. Nobody wants to be number 12. <clears throat> Most of them don't want to be number two. Everybody wants to be number one. This is clamoring for titles. But the Lord, what did He say to him? He said, listen. If you want to understand the depths of what it is to, to be number one for God, then you need to learn to be a servant of all. A slave. A doulos is a word. It's a, it's a word of abject poverty. Doulos is a word of, of a person who chose a life of slavery forever. That was a doulos. And if you read the, the, the epistles that Paul writes, do you know how he begins every epistle? Paul. A doulos. Bond servant. Well, we make it sound so nice when we... We, we churchize it. So I'm a bond servant. I'm a, I, I have chosen a life of abject poverty and slavery forever to the Lord. I mean, that's a statement. And here the Lord, when He talks to David, who's king, who's at the pinnacle of, of anything that there could be in those days, He says to him, My servant David. We gotta remember that. That's the whole point. That's why we do the stuff we do. If there's something else, if there's some concept of climbing a ladder of, of some type of success or, or desiring to be respected by, by men and women or, or whatever, we're outside our minds. We, we're, we're called to be servants like Christ. You wanna know what that picture is? Read John chapter 13. That's the time when Jesus, while the disciples were arguing over who's the greatest, he left them to their argument and he, and he went and he took off his robe and he, and he donned a towel and a basin of water and he went around one by one while they argued over who was the greatest and he washed their feet. And then he told them, what I have done for you you go and do likewise. The greatest place to be in the scheme of, or the hierarchy of God, is a servant. Totally given to serving the king. Not to serving the church. Not to serving the brothers and sisters. Those things may all be a part of it but to be serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My servant, David. Love that. My servant, David. So the Lord reminding David just in case, because remember Saul got into trouble when he became king. He started to read his own press articles and get excited about what everybody said about him. But he reminds my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I brought you from the pasture to the palace. And I think in this verse, God is reminding David, my people don't need a temple, they need a shepherd. That's why he went to 
a shepherd to find a king. You'll see that theme throughout Scripture. Over and over, especially through the prophets. When the prophets, when the Lord speaks to the prophets and He says, I have a, a prophecy against the shepherds who are to feed my flock Israel. And what was special about a shepherd? Jesus told us. How do we know what the good shepherd does? What's he do? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We, we cannot remove the concept that Jesus saying, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And Jesus saying, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You don't get to say, he's not calling me to give away my life. He most certainly is. He says, come and follow me. What did Psalm 23, who is the shepherd? What's Psalm 23 say? The Lord, right? The Lord is my shepherd. That, by the way, is capital L O R D. Yahweh. It's the name of God. Eternal God is my shepherd. Jesus said, a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So we have the concept of God being our shepherd, giving his life for the sheep, saying to us, if you would come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Remember we talked about this. A cross is not that pretty thing we wear around our neck. A cross was an implement of destruction. Take up your cross. Follow me. Jesus would go on to say, right? If you, if you seek to find your life or to save your life, what happens? You lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. But it's never been more obvious to me than... Whenever I go out, I actually went out, uh, I, I had a moment of temporary insanity, and I decided to go hunting with Robin Quigley. If he asks any of you guys to go hunting with him, tell him no. But unless you're in really good shape. So I think we hiked 20 miles into the bush. And at the end of our 20 miles, he took a nap. Well, I don't blame him. Well, I was pretty tired at that point. <clears throat> After the nap, we get up, we got to walk 20 miles back. I was praying, dear Lord, please don't let a deer run out and us shoot him because I don't want to carry nothing else. <laughs> we run out of water. So there's a stream, and I was pretty thirsty. I just about would have flopped down on my belly and put my face in the water to drink, to get as much of water as I could. But it's hard to get up from that position anymore. So I stooped down and I pulled up water in my hand. And when you pull up water in your hand, it looks like you're going to get a big old drink. You ever notice that? But by the time you got it to your mouth and took a slurp, it was just enough to get your tongue wet. But you know, when you stick your hands back in and you pull it back, it doesn't matter if you hold your hands tighter, does it? The water's still falling out. And when Jesus said, if you, if you try to save your life, if you're trying to hold on to stuff for you, if you're trying to make yourself the focus, or you be central, it's still all leaking out everywhere. And then nothing you do is eternal. It's all temporal. It's all passing away. <coughs> but when what we do is for the Lord, and He is central, 
then what we do is eternal and lasting. And not just fading away. We want to we allow God to be in that central place and to realize that God's call for David in this place is saying to David, David, I, I want you, I need you to be a shepherd. Peter, he's called of God twice, right? If you remember, he's there casting his nets and the Lord comes and says, come and follow me. And he leaves his nets and he follows the Lord. Then he's going to stumble and he's going to fall. He's going to fail. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to allow a little, a little slave girl to get him to, to say, I never knew him. He's going to deny the Lord three times. He's going to say, I don't even know him. Swear, I don't know the man. And then Jesus is going to look into his face and Peter's going to run away and weep bitterly over what just happened. Who... That same guy who at one time said, though everyone leave you, I won't. And then you have the, the resurrection of Christ. and When you come to John chapter 20, 21, you see some sad words from Peter. He says, I'm going fishing. Why is he going fishing? Well, I blew it. I denied the Lord. Sure, God, He's risen, but what, what, I can't expect anything from Him. I'm a failure. I messed up. I'm not good for anything. I, I, all I can do is go back to the nets I left. But who met Him there? Jesus. You remember He was, he was fishing and a fellow calls from the shore? It should have been a big clue to Peter because he'd seen this scene before. Have you caught any fish? Peter's the first fisherman who tell the truth. No. Cast your nets on the other side. And he casts his nets on the other side. And <clears throat> I think the number is 153. Is that right? It's an odd number, so it's easy to remember. Actually, there's some neat things about that, but I won't get into it. So he <clears throat> catches the 153 fish. Peter goes, it's the Lord. And he puts on his, I always love this part. He puts on his tunic and dives in the water. And... Swims to the Lord, and he and he has breakfast, and and they have breakfast with the Lord, and that's when the Lord has his meeting. Remember with Peter, and he says, "Peter, do you love me?" In the Greek, it's beautiful because he says, "Peter, do you agape me? Do you do you love me with a self-sacrificing love?" And Peter knows I've failed the Lord, and so he responds, "Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know I'm your friend." Do you remember what Jesus said next? Feed my sheep. What job is that? A shepherd. Tend my lambs. What job is that? Shepherd. The Lord tells Peter, when he restores Peter, he says, What my people need is a shepherd. Someone who will give their life for the sheep. Who doesn't seek to exalt themselves, but is willing to understand that I don't exist for the people to give me what they have, but I exist, this role exists, so that I might give to them what God calls me to give. I'm to feed 
his sheep throughout the nation of Israel. And so when God says, reminds David, I brought you from the pasture, that's what he's saying. David, remember, you're the shepherd king. That's why I brought you. That's what my people need. A big fancy building will come later. They need a shepherd king. And he's going to establish him. And that's the whole point as he gets into this. He goes on and says then in verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. I have karat. I love when I see that word. Cut off. Reminds me of Daniel chapter 9. When it speaks of the Messiah entering into Jerusalem, the scripture says that he will be karat, cut off, put to death, but not for his own sins. Here the Lord says to David, I've been with you. I've gone with you everywhere you've gone. I've, I've taken care of... Why did that stone hit Goliath and kill him? Was it because David practiced so much with the sling? He was an amazing sling. He would have been the Olympic sling gold medalist of that year if only he could have got out of the pasture and into the Olympics. Or is it because God was with him? Was it, was it because of his ability? The Lord says, wherever you went, I was with you. Whatever you did... I was there helping you, cutting off your enemies from before you. And then he says, not only that, not only have I watched over you, but I have made you a great name, like the name of great men who are on the earth. Remember the, the song that they were singing about David? David, Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The Philistines even knew the song. So... He's got a great name. Everybody knows who David is. They know so much about him, they don't want to fight no more. They're just going to stay home. David's king. We don't want to mess with David. The Lord says, because I have watched over you. It's because I gave you a great name. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. And move no more. I'll establish them. I'm going to give them a home. That promise right there is the reason Abraham lived every day of his life. That's what it says in Hebrews. That he looked for a city whose maker and builder was God. That he looked for a home that had foundations. What did Abraham spend his whole life in? Tents, right? Tent. Another tent. Another tent. Packing up, moving, going here and there. He looked for that solid home. That solid home. The Lord says, I will establish Israel. I will give them a home. And in that home, he will put himself in the middle. On top of a hill that David's going to buy. Built out of... Cedars from Lebanon that David's going to acquire. The gold for the temple is going to be gathered by David. All the building materials that Solomon's going to use, his father will have already brought into the land to set for God to fulfill his promise. 
God's going to establish the land and he's going to be with us. So there will be a house. I just won't be the one building it. Well, he goes on and says, Since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that, that he will make you a house. So, so the Lord is saying, listen, I have been taking care of all this stuff. And David, I, I'm, I'm kind of stoked that you want to build me a house, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. He wants to build the Lord a temple, but God says, I will build you a dynasty. Something eternal. Look at verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, I will set up your seed after you. That's singular. Not I'll set up your seeds your children, those who will follow, I'm going to set up your seed. That one thing that everybody's looking for since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, David, it's going to come through you. Genesis chapter 3 told us that the Messiah would be a man born of woman. Genesis chapter 50 told us that Messiah would come to Judah. Through the tribe of Judah. Here in 2 Samuel, the scripture tells us not only through Judah, but he will be the son of David. Through the lineage of David. I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oftentimes, when we look at Scripture, people talk about things like multiple fulfillments. You guys have heard that before, right? It's, it's a best attempt of putting a theological term into layman's terms. A, a better concept would be uh, a type fulfillment. Not that a prophecy can mean a hundred different things, but that often in prophecy, the Lord gives a type, a, a near picture of what is going to come. The near picture of this this one who will build the house for the Lord is Solomon. He's the near picture. Solomon's going to build the house. But he, Jesus said, there's a greater than Solomon in your midst. He is a type of Jesus Christ. Even as David is a type of Jesus Christ. A, A type prophecy that we see this near fulfillment in Solomon, but it is a picture the near fulfillment guys is a shadow it's a it's a it's a it's a failed replica of the real when jesus christ sets up his kingdom do you know what i mean so here he says this it's it pictures solomon i mean you know that this is true because it pictures solomon you'll read about it in in uh, first and second chronicles but when you come to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, this scripture that we're about to read in verse 14 is going to be applied to Jesus Christ. So you have a near type in Solomon of a perfect picture in Jesus Christ. Well, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I, you're going to struggle with that because the reign of the family of David only goes four centuries. 
And this word for forever is beyond the banish, vanishing point. So I, some people make a case that 400 years is further than people can remember, so it's beyond the vanishing point. But I think God actually meant forever. <laughs> and that will be the throne that Jesus Christ sets up. He's my king. President Obama may be my president, but Jesus Christ is my king. He has greater authority than any person I'll ever follow. And I'll follow him forever. The other one, hopefully only for another few months. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see what the Lord will do. But anyways, he goes on in verse 14. Listen to this. I want you to hear this. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And when the Lord is laying this out, and he's, and he's telling him about this... Oftentimes, the children of kings were called the son of God. It it was something that they did. But I believe when we look at verse 14, I think the the, the reference is clear. If we say that Solomon becomes that type, then then the Lord says, he's going to be like my son. You remember when Solomon comes to the throne, the, the Lord says, ask of me what you will. What do you want? You got a blank check. And this 12-year-old boy says, Man, I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough to lead your people. Give me wisdom. So the Lord says, Not only will I give you wisdom, but I'll give you all the things you didn't ask for. That you could have. Sounds like a father to his son. But it's a shadow of the reality of the true father and the true son. Do you understand? Jesus, when he came and he walked on this earth, he said, I only speak the words, what? My father gives me. I only do the deeds my father tells me to do. You see, the perfect relationship of father and son pictured in the type with Solomon, but perfected in Jesus Christ. Perfected in him. And Hebrews 1.5 attributes this verse, chapter, 14, or, or chapter 7, verse 14, to Jesus Christ. And if he commits iniqu- iniquity, now I want you to, uh, first I'm going to give you the, the, how this works for Solomon. Here's the promise, guys. <laughs> Did Solomon commit iniquity? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes you wonder how he really was the smartest man. Doesn't give us much hope for the rest of us, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but, but the promise of God is, I will never leave him or forsake him. Or his son. Or his son. And we're going to see the line of David rule for 400 years. And they're not good kings. You get David, Solomon, and then a whole bunch of bad kings. 
And every once in a while, a good one. And then a whole bunch of bad ones. And then a good one. And then a whole bunch of bad ones. But Saul disobeyed the Lord, and God pulled his spirit from him and stripped him from being king. The Lord says to David, I'll be with him. All day long, I'll extend my hand to them. If they commit iniquity, I'll chasten them. The book of Hebrews says that's what a father does for his sons. He disciplines his children so that his children learn to walk in obedience. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I will never, my mercy will not depart from him like it did from Saul. So, we see a type of that in Solomon. But the perfect picture is Jesus Christ, who had no iniquity, but bore iniquity. He who knew no sin became sin. It's a bad picture for us to say, He bore my sin on the cross. While that's true, He bore it in this sense. He became sin. That's what Paul wrote. He who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. And upon Him was laid the stripes of men. And by His stripes we are Healed. The Lord put on him the chastisement for us all. That's what Isaiah said. He bore our reproach. He became our sin and the ultimate judgment upon it. Oh, but God's mercy is not removed. Because he is the perfect sin sacrifice. It says in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. He told David, Man, this is the deal, David. This is what's going to happen. This is what God says. You can't build the house. It's not until later in his life that God tells him why. He doesn't tell him why. He doesn't tell him at this point, you're a man of blood. Your hands have blood on them so you can't build my house. He says, nope, you can't build my house, but I'm going to build one for you. I'm going to bring the Messiah from your line. And he will sit on your throne. And he will be known. He'll be known as the son of David. Man, that's an awesome picture. And as we look at it, and as we see it, it, 400 years of of good, bad kings, not so great. The line of David was was bad as any kingly line could have been throughout history. But in in Isaiah, if you guys just want to turn there, just, just quick. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I I love this scripture. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Well, 
This is, this is how I read it so I kind of understand what's going on. There shall come forth a ruler from the stump of Jesse. Well, 400 years of kings, the kingly line is cut off. There's no king in Israel after time of Babylon going into Rome. Herod's not a king. He's not even Jewish. The, the throne of David is empty. There's a stump. But the scripture says, from the stump, I'm going to bring forth a ruler. A branch will grow from his roots. The roots speak of his origin. That which is the, the origin of Jesse, from the origin of Jesse, from the originating force behind who Jesse is. It's speaking of coming from God. Through his roots, I will bring out the branch, Nazareth. It's a part of the root word for a little town Jesus was known to come from. Nazareth. Nazareth. The branch. And a branch will come out of his roots. What's verse 2 say? The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. They see the, the empowerment of the Messiah coming from this broken line of kings. There's not a king. But Jesus is on the throne. He's, he's been on the throne for, for eternity. He was crucified from the foundation of the world. We'll know him as king when he comes back, because we've been studying on Sunday, when he comes back, sets his foot to the earth and sets up his kingdom. But he's on the throne. You've heard that before, right? God's still on the throne. He hasn't taken a day off or fell asleep. He knows what he's doing. The return of the king. And as the promise of God in Isaiah, and not just in Isaiah 11, other places as well. But as we look, David hears these words, and he's going to respond. From verse 18 through 29, we have David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Man, I love this. <clears throat> he... He, he, he went... He went before the Lord. Uh, to me, that can only be one place. But he had to go to where the ark was. It's only the high priest is supposed to go there. Well, David's such a great type because he's a type of a prophet and a priest and a king. And he fulfills all three of those roles. He sits down before the ark in the presence of God. And he's so blown away by, by what God said. Now I'm sure he's disappointed. He wants to do something for the Lord. He wants to do something great. And, and in essence God says, well, I know you want to do something great for me. But I'm going to do something great for you. And David's response to him is, who am I? Well, you're, the, you're the king of Israel. Don't you know who I am? That tends to be the way we use those words. 
we get them switched around. Instead of saying, who am I? We, we think, don't you know who I am? Yeah, you're just another person on a tiny planet in a humongous solar system that was set spinning by the hand of God, the span of his hands. Who am I, David says, who am I, O Lord God? Now, just a quick language lesson. <clears throat> All the O Lord Gods, in, from verse eight, 18, 19, 20, uh, and 28 and 29, are uh, this phrase, um, Yahweh Adonai, which basically means Sovereign Lord. And when we come to the other ones, I'll tell you where those are at. They're Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim is my God of power. So Sovereign Lord and God of power, we, 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 sometimes we kind of miss that. You know, we, we get so used to saying the word God. Oh, Lord God, God. We, to me, it's different to hear the heart of what David says when he says, My Sovereign Lord, my God who is in control of every aspect of my life. So when he says, then the king went in and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, sovereign Lord of my life, the ruler of my life? What is my house that you have brought me this far? Who am I? I don't deserve these things. The only way you come to that place is to recognize and acknowledge that you are a sinner. And that you do not deserve the goodness that God gives you. Otherwise, you think, I live a good life and so God should do good things to me. You ever felt that way before? I read my Bible every day. I, I pray every day. I, I do all these things and I do all those things because if I do all those things, God will give me a good life. That is manipulation. I do all those things because I love the Lord my God. I am a sinner and I don't deserve anything God's ever given me. I don't have a problem seeing it. And for those of you who know my story, you don't have a problem saying that that's right. Jackie's a low down, no good for nothing sinner. That's easy to see. The problem is when we turn that mirror on ourselves, are we able to see ourselves as a sinner? Because that's what the Bible declares us to be. Not a good person. Not a good person. David, who's king, who's done all these great things for the Lord, he doesn't say, yeah, Lord, man, thank you for blessing me. I, I, that's why I obeyed you. That's not what he says. He says, who am I, God? I'm a sinner. I'm humbly before God. He's just going before him and praising the Lord, thanking him for, for whatever he receives. That's how we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's how we can rejoice when, when life is hard and things are tough. Because we don't expect that life was supposed to be easy and things good. Well, if we do, we think that God has done us wrong by the struggle we face. 
If we're honest, that's how we feel. And that's the struggle that we have. And that's the struggle where I have to realize, what's my motivation? Why do I obey God? Why am I coming to church? Why do I study His Word? Why do I do those things? Am I doing it so that God has to give me, be indebted to me? Or do I do it because I love Him? Because the call from God is to love the Lord my God, how? With all my heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that's in me. That's how I want to love Him. And so I want to have that accurate picture. I'm going to have this picture of me. I'm, I'm not a good person. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Without Jesus Christ in my life, there's no value to me. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do most things. Some things, a few things, you can do no thing. In Philippians, he said, but with him in Christ, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, right? I can do all things through him. But without him, I can't do anything. Here he is. He's acknowledging that. This is different from Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 4. You read about this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, right? King of the whole world. And he's struggling with pride. His pride is, look at the kingdom that I have built. Now, set him here and look at David. Here David is sitting before God saying, Oh, Lord, I don't deserve any of this. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. You've done all these things for me. Who is my house? Who am I? It's, it's, it's a different relationship than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar actually thinks he deserves all this kingdom that he has because of all his efforts. So, God takes Nebuchadnezzar down a little trail of insanity. And he makes him crazy. And I don't really care how long you say it is. Seven years, seven seasons. I don't care if it's seven weeks. If, if President Obama lost his mind, if he went crazy and he was... Eating the grass. We talked about this, right? He's outside eating the grass, running around naked, hair growing long, fingernails like claws. Uh, people would say, where's the vice president at? He's gone. But Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom remained because God said, I'm holding your kingdom together, brother, not you. And so Nebuchadnezzar writes Daniel chapter 4 saying, that's right. God is the most high. God is the most high. Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize what David understands here. And he says in verse 19, And yet, this is a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O God? Oh, he's again, sovereign Lord, the God in control of my life. And what does he call himself? I'm your king? Or I'm your servant, the king? No, he just says, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. I'm here to do your will, O Lord. I'm here, to, I'm here to do what you've asked me to do. Now what more can, can David say to you? He speaks of himself in the third person. I, I kind of like that. What more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. And it reminds me of the 139th Psalm. The, that, that you know the words before I speak them. You know my thoughts before I thought them. David says, you, you know what's in my heart, Lord, you know me. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know. To make your servant know. 
God's showing himself gracious, merciful, magnificent, powerful in the life of David. And David says, you're just showing me. God is revealing himself in my life. Showing me himself, showing me who he is. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. This is Yahweh Elohim. Oh, you are great, O God of power. For there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, <laughs> the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation, the nations and their gods, for you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. God means the promises he gives. They're still his people. Not all who claim to be of Israel are Israel. The Lord says he will gather his nation from the four corners of the earth. All who are real. Matthew chapter 25, we'll see the judgment of the nations, and God knows how to divide the sheep from the goats. He knows who are his and who aren't. He will be able to, to lay claim to those things, and this is a promise that, that here David saying, look at the past. I see you moving in my life, teaching me about you in my present. I see you moving in my life and teaching in my past. I see you doing these things, O oh Lord God. And then in verse 25, he says, oh, now, O oh Lord God, again, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh Elohim, God of power, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, establishing it forever, do as you have said. David was never afraid to grab a promise that God gave and say, Lord, keep your promise that you gave me. It's not a commanding God to do anything. He's laying hold of a promise of God. He's laying hold. He's possessing. He's taking possession of a promise that God has given him. He's saying, oh Lord God, do what you said you will do. So let your name be magnified forever. Yahweh Sabaoth. O Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. For the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. Let what you have said be. Thy kingdom come. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Let your word be established. What you have said, may it happen. For you... Yahweh Sabaoth, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. Thy kingdom come. May your word be established. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Isn't that how the book of Revelation ends? Even so, come, 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 thy kingdom come. What's the next part of that phrase? Well, that's in, in 28. And now, O Lord God, you 
our God. And your words are true. You have promised this goodness to your servant. Your will be done. May your words be established. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What you have, Lord, what you desire, God, it's for you. It's all about you. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, my sovereign Lord, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Yeah, I'm sure... I'm sure David's disappointed because he wants to build the house for God. But he's blown away by the grace and the mercy that God's given him. You ever been disappointed by God? David gives us a clue here. If we can learn if we can learn to meditate on the goodness of God in the land of the living. The stuff that God's given us. The blessings that we have. Philippians, Paul wrote it like this in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. To meditate on the pure and the lovely. David doesn't sit here in his prayer and say, God, why don't you let me build the house? I want to build the temple. And stomp his feet until he gets what he wants. He says, thank you for establishing my house. Thank you for your blessing in my life. Keep your promise to me. Oh, this is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, the promise of the king, the guarantee that Jesus Christ will return and sit on the throne of David. We just read it. That's the promise that's laid out for us. And that's what he holds on to. That's what he holds on to. But he still finds something to do. He still amasses the gold. He still brings the wood. He still brings all the stuff that his son Solomon's going to use to build the temple. He still is a part of the process. He just doesn't get to build the house. And he doesn't pout about it. He just continues to be a part of the work that God's doing. And excited to be there. And he's about two chapters from messing up again. I figure I'm always about two chapters from messing up too. That's what makes us men and women. But the fact that we always return to the centrality of Christ is what makes us men and women after God's own heart. Who always return. Who come to that central place where He is my Lord and Savior. And even though maybe I'm disappointed in what's happening in my life, I can learn to do what Paul said or what David shows me in 2 Samuel, and meditate on the pure and the lovely and the good. There's so much good stuff that God gives us every day that we ignore. I wonder how much our attitudes, how much better our attitudes would be if every day we just spent some time thanking God for the good that He's given us. I could... Complain every morning when I hear Joe come stomping up the stairs and slam the door for the 47th time. And he runs over and he turns on lost tapes. And I think, Joe, you've watched that thing 
472 times in a row. You don't have to turn it on. I'll just tell you what it says. I can complain about what he's not. Or I can rejoice in what he is. That's my son. I'm going to love him forever. And one day, I'll have a relationship with him I've never been able to have here. That's in Christ. That's good. We hold on to the good. Meditate on the pure and the lovely. Celebrate the blessings of God. Yeah, it'll change our attitude. Makes the storms in our life seem not so bad. And the promise that we look for seem oh so good. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time where we can come before you. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. The promises that you give, God, that from cover to cover, you're telling us the same story. You're doing the same things. Nothing's changed. I thank you for the example of David. And I thank you for the example of a, of a failing, stumbling man who falls into sin but always knows how to return to the Lord. God, may we learn that that's the key. Keep you central. You're in the middle of the camp. In the middle of the nation. And God, how I wish that you would be in the middle of my nation. But before you can be in the middle of my nation, before anything in this world is going to change, you've got to be in the middle of me. And you've got to be in the middle of every person in your church. We can complain all we want, but nothing's going to change until we make you central. In my life, for judgment begins in the house of God. God, I just pray that we would learn these things. And God, that we would make that choice that says, I want you. I want you in the middle. I want you a part of my life. I want... Everything that I do, I do for you, through you. No matter what my job, no matter what my occupation, I am a believer in Jesus Christ first. Who happens to paint freeways? Or janitor, be a janitor in a school? Or dispatcher in a trucking yard. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ first. That is who I am. May you be central behind what we do. Behind how we raise our children. How we love our neighbor. How we meet the needs of our community. May you be central in everything that we do. For we seek above all things to love and honor you. That your name would be magnified, not ours. That your name would be glorified and not mine. For you are the God of God, King of kings, my sovereign Lord. 
you rule in my life. And we give you all the praise, all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close up.